2: Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. I'm really happy to have you with me, and please do not hesitate to be in touch with questions, comments, and to let me know who you might like me to try to have on the show. You can also find links to my social media and website on the host page at Voice America as well. Today I'm talking with Marie Matsuki Mockett. Marie was born and raised in California to a Japanese mother and American father, and graduated from Columbia University with a degree in East Asian Languages and Civilization. Her first novel, Picking Bones from Ash, was shortlisted for the Soroyan International Prize for Writing and a finalist for the Peterson Prize. She's written for the New York Times, Salon, National Geographic, Glamour, and More, and has been a guest on Talk of the Nation and All Things Considered on NPR. In 2013, Marie was awarded a fellowship by the NEA and Japan US Friendship Commission, which enabled her to live in Japan. While there, she was fe- featured in the NHK, which is the Japanese national broadcasting documentary, Venerating the Departed, which was broadcast internationally several times. That, of course, resulted in the book we'll be talking about today, Where the Dead pause and the Japanese Say Goodbye, A Journey, which has been published by W.W. Norton & Company, Incorporated. In her spare time, Marie loves to take dance class, read, travel, study languages, knit, listen to live music, enjoy old and new friends, and bird watch. She lives in San Francisco with her husband and son. Welcome, Marie. Oh, thank you. It's my great pleasure to be here. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you for your beautiful, beautiful book.
3: Thank you for reading it, and thank you for being so interested in it. It's, it's, um, it's really been a pleasure to share it with you. I feel like you really, really understood why I wrote it and the impetus for writing it, which, which makes all that lonely work really worthwhile.
2: Uh yeah. And and also just um before we talk about the content, I, I felt as if I, I've always wanted to go to Japan, honestly. And mm-hmm. I felt as if I did a little bit. Your language oh. is just so um so made me feel as if I was there.
3: Thank you. Well it's a place that I love that is really special to me. I know it's far and it's hard for people to get to, but I I think it probably was a goal of mine to try to give people a sense of what it feels like to be there and and what and and how that feeling is different than uh being any place else. So I did try to capture that in writing the book.
2: And and that really came through and uh in particular, of course, you know, I, I do a radio show called Good Grief. I'm very, very interested in how people grieve in other places because mm-hmm. I uh I think uh, people do grieve very differently from place to place, and uh, I d- I don't know that um, Western culture has a particularly helpful way to grieve. Sometimes, so right. having those th- two things together, you know, uh, the 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 vision of that place and the vision of how grief is there just was very powerful for me. So thank you for that. Thank you.
3: Um, I think one of the things that makes Japan A special place to visit is that it's a very old culture even though it has this modern overlay so if if you were to visit you would recognize you know cars and streets and ATM machines and things are very very efficient and very modern but underneath all of that there's this extremely old culture and of course one of the first questions that humans would ask themselves would be what do I do about the fact that I'm hurting Mm, (laughs) you know how do I comfort myself or someone I love, and so a lot of attention has been paid to that question over generations and over centuries, um, and some of it is harder to understand because the way in which people grieve comes from a different time, um, but it, there's usually something of value to the way that people grieve in uh, old cultures, mm. and so I, was, I felt really lucky that I got to explore that in writing this book.
2: It was, I was- helpful to me. I can imagine, and or but I'm not sure which. Mm-hmm. Uh, being go, you went of course to I guess to do the documentary, yes. which, um, but it it was clear that your own grief about the people you had lost was very central to. It became clearer and clearer as the book went on how central that was to how you were exploring it, and I just wondered, and not to mention the tsunami there. And how impactful that is having family there and and them going through that experience, I wondered if it was hard to at first be so public because writing a book is relatively private um, but the but the documentary part was pretty public. Was that difficult or not? It was difficult i'm not you know the
3: first book I wrote was a novel, and i I'm not by nature really um it's not my impulse to, to talk about myself. <laughs> I, uh, I never thought I would write a memoir, for example. Um, and I, I probably tricked myself into thinking that I was exploring Japan or that I was looking at other people and trying to understand something other than myself uh, when I was first over there. And that was probably how I got started. Um, and but then, as you know, as, as both the documentary and definitely the book came along, it you know when we talk about something as raw as grief, I think when you're in a state of grieving, you know if someone's not telling you the truth because mm-hmm. the emotion of grief is so raw, it kind of cuts through all of the of the BS basically. So you have absolutely. to absolutely, yeah, you have to be emotionally honest. You know, it's like when when people would sort of say things like, oh, well, you'll feel better in a year, or give it time, you know, these things that just didn't didn't sound like they were really applicable to me, and I would I would sort of think, oh, that's just a Band-Aid, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and so and as I was dumb. writing about the subject of grief, I would have to ask myself, you know, how you have to really be really emotionally present here, and you have to really be honest. And so that, that meant that I had to sort of examine my own situation, too, and couldn't just make it about other people and their stories. Um, if that makes any sense, uh, oh, and there's definitely sense. a balance. I mean, there there's a degree to which I'm comfortable talking about my experiences, and to which I'm not. I think there was a review that I read of the book that said that I didn't describe my father um, in great detail, and that was because I just didn't, you know, I just didn't want to. <laughs> there was a de- there was a point at which I didn't want to be overly open, um, but I. But also, I would also say that one of the big lessons that I learned through all of this, of course, is that. That our grief is personal and, and our losses are very personal and very special and very distinct. But we also, all of us who go through this process of grieving and are still going through it, you know, you learn that it's something that everybody goes through. Mm-hmm. And it, in, in kind of opening your heart up to that fact that, that everyone will lose someone, I think is, is one of the ways out of the in sort of intense self-focus when you're in the throes of grief. Um, and so it, it is important to just open the lens up and to connect to other people in that way. It's a, it's a strange, um, not necessarily intuitive way to heal, I guess. The, would be the way to. Put not what
2: it. not what most of us did automatically before grief. Right. Yeah. I want to give listeners a little sense of the book. Would you share the part of of about traveling with your mother as a child because I think uh, that's kind of uh, how the book feels in a way right from the beginning
3: um, Yes, let me see if I can find it. Um, i didn 't actually have it prepared
2: uh, it 's on the third page. As a child traveling through Japan with my mother, it starts.
1: Um,
2: Yes.
3: Um. So as a child traveling through Japan with my mother, I kept an illustrated journal of our adventures. In one entry, I was swimming in the waters off the beach at Oarai, a town located on the Tohoku coast whose name means Big Washing, which sounded romantic before the tsunami. Now, all I was covered with sludge. In another illustration, I was standing under the gigantic, chandelier-like ornaments of Sendai's famed Tanabata Star Festival, but Sendai had been pummeled and its airport closed. In yet another diary entry, my mother was knee-high in dark blue water and holding an umbrella while I clung to her back. I remember laughing as my mother carried me to the safety of an elevated train platform, but we were also afraid. What if the flooding did not stop? All these towns had a beach. Whenever we visited the beach, my mother would ask, what do you do if the water suddenly disappears? Run, I would answer. Why? She would fire back. As I got older, this questioning became annoying. Born in Japan, my mother had trained to be an opera singer in Europe, where she met my father, an American. Both had a tendency to behave as though they were on a stage. Sometimes I got to be on the stage with them. Sometimes I was the audience. It made it tricky to know what to take seriously. Come on, why? She'd press, because it
2: means a tsunami is coming, I would sigh, whatever that was. <laughs> I love that, whatever, the, it's such, you capture yeah. that child's voice. What is she talking about? I and no
3: idea. <laughs> you know, and the funny thing is she didn't know either because she'd never seen one. Mm. But she had been raised by her mother, who had been raised by her mother, who actually had seen a tsunami, <laughs> but, uh-huh. but my mother never had, and my grandmother never had. So it just it, it, this warning had simply been handed down to us. And then when the tsunami actually hit, um, we thought, oh, that's what it is, you know. And until recently, there really wasn't even very good video footage, so it was hard to you would get, you would just get an oral account of what had happened, but it was hard to get a visual of what it actually looked like.
2: What I was thinking when I, when I read that is that that's a bit the way grief is. you you know it's yes. kind of so theoretical until yes. you're in the tsunami um, and and s- particularly theoretical to children, most children, because most children don't even have a concept of of, of death at very young ages. Uh, so it seemed so moving to me that you that that, that story came back to you you know in the in the midst of the tsunami
3: it's a really good point and i think i think i after my father passed away and that was really what really made me have to confront this this experience of grief i remember feeling like um somebody wrote me a note and the note said you know this is a rite of passage that none of us want to have to go through and that really kind of encapsulated what it felt like It's almost like there are people who are in this club of having lost Mm -hmm. someone and experienced this kind of intense grief, and people who haven't yet had that happen. And it's interesting. I'm 44, and I have friends who still have both their parents. You know, their parents are still alive. Um, There are even people who still have grandparents, which is Mm -hmm. amazing. So this hasn't happened to them yet. Yes. Uh, And then when I did lose my father, I immediately thought of my friends who had lost a parent and immediately thought, oh, this is. They must have felt something like this, you know. And they were the ones who would say, "Oh, Marie, I'm so sorry. You know, I know what that's like." And I, and then I would say to them, "Well, is it, what's going to happen to me? You know, <laughs> because uh-huh. I would think they know." Um, but it is true. Until it happens to you, it is a theoretical thing. And you, all the books that you read or the movies that you see, don't really prepare you for the in the internal change that you that you undergo.
2: And, and sometimes the way I express that is the physical experience. Uh, I, I had a, a teacher who would say the map is not the territory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. so before mm-hmm. before you experience something, it's just a map. It's just a piece of paper. Right. And then once you visit, it's completely different. Right. That's, that's what that's we're talking funny. about, isn't yeah. it?
3: Yeah. No, it's very, very true.
2: Yeah. I was also quite... Uh, I, I started... You know, I've been very interested in in um, moments where um, pained and interested in moments where a large number of people experience loss at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, like tsunami or a um, you know a mass shooting, or mm-hmm. and and I've I've always thought it goes it cuts both ways. On the one hand, it's so horrifying, you know, mm-hmm. such such big losses, so, such big numbers. On the other hand, you're, you're rather with others in it, which is not what it usually feels like. Right. Uh, I, I wondered what you thought about that. You yeah, know, it's you- funny.
3: I think the first time I thought about that really was after 9-11. I was in New York, and there was that feeling of the whole city being in a, a collective state of mourning, Um, and it having been this shared experience. uh, And I remember people who didn't live in New York City asking uh, my husband and me about 9-11, because for them it was this sort of fascinating thing that had happened on TV. (laughs) Mm. Or people would come to New York, and they wanted to go down to see where the, the, the Twin Towers had stood. And we never wanted to go down as tourists and look at that spot because it, it was a real experience. Um, and a trauma. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't, it wasn't a media event. And really, I think the tsunami was a sort of a similar thing in that uh, there was so much video footage, and it was so horrifying, and so people kept using the word spectacular, and we just couldn't believe how much land and how much stuff was damaged just by the water raging in over the, over the, the shore, uh, that it was fascinating. You know, and I've met people since who say, wow, I just watch those videos over and over again. It's amazing. You know, and I don't watch the videos over and over again because it's <laughs> upsetting, because damage is being done to something that I, that I really love. Um, but there's this weird sort of spectacular thing that happens. Um, but then it was also interesting to then go to Japan and if you go to Tohoku, absolutely every single person that you speak to has a story about how they were affected by this disaster, whether they were inland or whether they were on the coast or whether they escaped, or perhaps they were inland at a hospital inland and they, and they, they really needed medical care, but they got displaced because someone who was more wounded came in. You know, I heard all kinds of stories like that, um, but... I also, you did also get the sense that people were able to connect to each other over this disaster and, and pull together sometimes, um, at least in the initial stage after the disaster occurred. I mean, there were wonderful stories of of people taking food and supplies and, and helping each other because um, the people who were healthy or able-bodied were able to see who was injured and who needed help, etc. cetera. Um, so there was that marvelous period, I think, where there was a lot of Real community effort, mm-hmm. um, but then uh, after that period sort of faded away. I did also. I think there were a lot of people who felt very alone with their particular tragedy and their personal loss. Um, and then there was the surrealness of the landscape physically having been affected. Um, yes. You know, when my father died, he died, and then the house sort of stayed the same.
2: <laughs> right.
3: A, a lot of these people. Lost someone, lost their home, and then maybe had to deal with radiation, or maybe had to go live in a temporary home, and then couldn't go. So you know, it's just sort of a really abrupt change in their reality mm-hmm. in on, on every single level. Yes.
2: Um, it's time for our first break, uh, and when we come back, I'd, I'd like to talk more about this, but also about the journey you took itself, and who you met, and and kind of um, the different teachings I. Uh, I witnessed you in the book being exposed sure. to and and listeners in the break, go to my social media uh, and let me know what you think of the show and connect with me. Don't forget that I'm available as a grief counselor in California and as a speaker and consultant worldwide. to find out more about Marie and her wonderful book, go to m a-r i e m o c k e t t dot com dot com back after the break.
0: your life your health your network you're listening to voice
4: america health and wellness if you think you've seen online tv before
0: Or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
2: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and today I'm talking with Marie Motsuki Mocket, author of the book, Where the Dead pause and the Japanese Say Goodbye. Um, you took a grief journey. I know it was a few years after your losses. Is that right?
3: Yes, it was.
2: And... Um, in the book, it felt to me, and I may be, I may be adding this in because I have this idea. At first, with grief, you're sort of feeling around, like you're in a cave somewhere and trying to, <laughs> you know. Yes. No, I think that's very to feel the, the walls and it's totally dark and you're you're doing things almost by impulse. Yes. Um, and then after a while, it starts to make more sense. Um, yes. And and it felt to me a little like the book was like that you were you were kind of going where things called you to go.
3: Yeah. Uh, is that how you focus. experienced it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I I was trying to say earlier that I simple platitudes, you know, oh, your father's always with you, he's always watching over you didn't mean anything to me. I needed something deeper than that, something that spoke to the rawness and the realness of of grief. And over time, traveling through Japan, I was able to find those rituals and those expressions of grief that made it make more sense in a way that was really profound and that was really accurate and that wasn't just like a simple sort of platitude.
2: You know, I I have the feeling that the The kind of redeeming features of grief it's it's not a fun experience, obviously yeah. <laughs> you know it's a very painful experience, yeah, but the redeeming features tend to come from really allowing it to happen, not trying to get out of it yeah and uh, i I noticed that you dove in, you immersed yourself, and I wondered if that was a quality of your personality before the losses. Or if it happened as a result of just not being able to get out of it, like we can't when we're grieving. Do you have I a sense of that?
3: I think it's probably both. I mean, I think if you really want to, I mean, real real grief is is very real. It's not it's not something that you can escape from. And I'm not um, I'm not a heavy drinker. Uh, I'm not a, a substance abuser. So it was really pretty hard for me to escape from what I was feeling. Um, and I was really fortunate. I had a, a father who wanted me from an early age to talk about how I felt. So I didn't grow up in a family that repressed feeling. Uh, so I would sit there and think, I feel horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and the person I most want to talk to about how horrible I feel isn't here. And now I feel even worse. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to get out of this. And uh, nothing simple is going to help me get out of this. And so... You know, the grief really was just crushing, and I would read a description of complicated grief, and I would think, yeah, that's that's probably me. You know, here we are, it's a year two, and I'm not really feeling all that much better, um, and I don't know how to get out of it. Uh, but I am also somebody who, I'm a writer, and I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of cerebral, and I ask a lot of questions, and so I eventually applied that attitude towards the process of grieving as well. You know, what what has happened? And one of the things people say to me is that they like, that I try to examine grief from as many different angles as possible with this book, and that's sort of just the way that I am, <laughs> sort of the way yes. my brain works. You know, there's a part of me that's always saying, well, what about this? Well, what if we look at it this way? Well, what about that? Um, and that ended up being the the attitude that I had to take Toward my own grief, which is perhaps not the most efficient way to live. <laughs> um, and maybe I make things a little bit more complicated, but you know, I was, I was thinking, H- how have I changed and how am I supposed to relate to other people and what do I want to do next and do I want to do anything next? And you know, I had a lot of, I had a lot of questions that I had to just ask and examine and think about. And of course, What that means is that it took a lot of time to, quote-unquote, feel better or process the weight of what I was feeling. Um, But it is probably uh, part of my personality anyway to be sort of thoughtful that way. And to ask hard questions. I think when you want to get to the truth of something, or to the heart of the matter, whatever it is, um, that means you ask hard questions um, and don't necessarily accept an easy an- answer.
4: Mm.
2: You know, since I'm a, I'm a counselor and I work with people on changing, I've thought a mm. lot about what it takes to change. Mm. And, and of course, grief is one big, big experience of change, usually. Mm-hmm. And, I th- and one thing I've come up with, which surprised me at first, is curiosity. Mm. It, it takes curiosity you, you know, you have to kind of say, "What is going on here?" And I think that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Um, you you have yes. to kind of say, "Wow, my my stomach feels like it's being ripped out. What is going on here?" <laughs>
3: you know. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. And it, it it and yes, my question wasn't just how can I feel better, but what is happening to me? What has happened? What is going to happen? Um, what am I supposed to do? I thought yeah, all of those all of those things were going through my head. Um if it was just a question of feeling better, then um you know, I could just take some medicine and feel better, but mm-hmm. that wouldn't really have been a sufficient answer.
2: I think it would be a perfect moment to share uh the piece in your book about old baba.
3: Yeah, I love that you chose this section. Um I just will say that old Baba was a complete surprise to me. I didn't know she existed. She was one of my happy discoveries, um, I say happy tongue-in-cheek, uh, as I went through my journey in Japan. And I only ran into old Baba toward the end of my stay there, which I think I think, is sort of makes sense. Um, mm. She's an old, old figure who predates Buddhism, predates perhaps even Shinto. Nobody knows where she comes from. She's one of the oldest expressions of grief and tragedy, uh, and I, I just my experience with her was really, really had a very strong impact on me. Um, I was so glad that you found this paragraph. For months, I could not shake the image of terrifying old Baba, the hag, who keeps the souls of lost children stuck on the side of a river, and who takes away the clothes and the skin of the newly dead and the sad and kind Baba, whom I had seen when I looked at her from the side. Superimposed on this was the fuzzy-headed priest and his crab-lady mother or wife. They had introduced me to the old hag. I knew why Baba had such a frightening face. I really hated feeling lost in the abyss of grief, and I often hated the person that I was, this person who was so unhappy all the time and had to rein in what she said, lest other people see how unhappy she was. But many months later, I started to think about Baba a little differently. She, whose job it was to terrify and to torment, knew exactly how horrible her actions were. And part of her grieved to have to do this to us. But her job was also necessary and unstoppable. For months, I had been looking to return to my life to the way it had been before my father and grandparents died. And when I couldn't do that, when I couldn't bring them out of the underworld, I had felt a touch of madness. Old Baba had been trying to tell me that it would be impossible to heal my wound by resurrecting anyone who was dead. If I insisted on trying to do this unfeasible thing, then the world would only be reflected back to me as it appeared in Old Baba's most obvious expression, with fury and scorn. Indeed, this was how my surroundings had appeared to me for a long time. But if I went about things another way... If I could in fact accept that my world had forever changed, then I could see grief as it was depicted from the side of Baba's face, with sadness, but with compassion for others. Having once seen the face of deep grief, though, I did not think it was possible to go back to a point in life when I didn't know old Baba existed at all.
2: I just really love that conclusion to that whole thought that, that there's no going back once yeah. you once you let... And that's the good news and the bad news sometimes, that's I right. guess. But that's over right. time, I've come to feel, for me anyway, the more time goes by, the more it's the good news. Right. Um, because your life is on a bit of a different footing, yes?
3: Yes. And it's... You know, it's. I was thinking about this just the other day because... I was with my son, who's five, and I had to tell him that we were not going to go to the aquarium today, we're going to go to the aquarium tomorrow, and he was just beside himself, crying and crying, and, you know, we talked about the fact that he was mad, and that he was sad, and that that was okay, but that mommy couldn't fix it, I couldn't change it so that we were going to the aquarium today, <laughs> and I thought, uh-huh. this is sort of the way that an adult is about grief, it's... I. I I cannot I cannot bring back the life you once had, Marie, right? That, that's gone. You cannot bring your father back. You cannot go back and live in that world. And that was definitely something that I would sit there and think about. Like, I just want to go back to the way it was. You know, yes. I don't want to live in this world now the way that it is now. I want to go back to that other world. And somehow it just takes time for your brain to accept that, it's almost like a childish tantrum that you, you know, that you, you cannot go back to the way the world was before you were grieving or that I couldn't go back. Um, I had to live in the world as it was now. And this is, this is, it's like a lesson that you keep having to learn as an adult. Um, but of course, when those feelings are tied up with love uh, and the loss of love, um, it's just so much harder to accept that, I think.
2: it's It's kind of the big guns, isn't it? Yeah. because because <laughs> what you're talking yeah. about uh, you know i I don't restrict my my sense of loss to just these huge losses that we have. we're having losses all the time, aren't we? Yes. They're Absolutely. just smaller, and your your child cries, and then the next day the aquarium comes and he's overjoyed and you yes. know um, yes. but yes. there's and
3: the the ideal he had in his mind of going to the aquarium that day that is lost forever but we did get to go to the aquarium the next day <laughs> That's yes. true. and yeah. so
2: it goes by so fast we don't think of those things in terms of perpetual loss and coming to terms with uh that condition in our lives yes um and i do think you you know you said you you Eventually face up to it, but I don't think it's just a time thing. Do you? I mean, I do no, know I people who right. never, who never face up to that. No, I think that that's true, and it, it's
3: so. I, you know, knock on wood, I'm middle age, <laughs> even though, even though they they tell me that the forties are the new thirties. But um, <laughs> I find it really fascinating to watch my peers get older, and you see the for some people, the sort of deepening of the heart and the expansion of the heart, how they're able to love more people, love animals. And then I see other people sort of ossify and calcify and are more frustrated and more upset that they haven't been able to do what they wanted to do, whatever that is. Um, and it is that difference. I mean, I'm making it very stark and of course there's there are more gradations than that, but it, it is a reflection, I think, of a certain attitude um, and an understanding of uh, of one's place, I guess, and relationship to everyone else mm-hmm. that, that happens. Um, and I think for some people, that transition is really natural. I mean, there are people who just grow older and they're so graceful about it, and I admire them so much. And there are other people who fight it harder. And I was probably someone who was fighting change harder, which is why I was making it more difficult for myself.
2: Mm, that's that's very interesting. That in some way it wasn't just tied up with the losses, but with uh that sense of of the arc of loss throughout your lifetime and not wanting to accept that? Is Absolutely. that what I'm, I'm hearing?
3: I, yeah. I think that I was, you know, the architect of my own misery as well, you know, because my I kept hanging, like my son was hanging on to this idea, I want to go to the aquarium today, you know. Yeah. He wasn't able to just say, okay, we'll go tomorrow. No, I wanted to go today, you know, and I, I saw that, and I thought, gosh, that's a lot like you, Marie, you know. No, mm-hmm. I wanted my father to be alive now. I don't want to have to live without him, you know. It was this
2: yes. attitude
3: that I continued to to just hold on to. Um, I don't want to find out who I have to be without him, you know, uh, I, and I definitely made it harder for myself, uh, and the only way out was, as I was trying to describe with um, the description of old Baba, was to see that it is a very sad thing, but it is a thing that happens to everyone. And once I understood that it was a thing that happens to everyone and that everyone shares this terrible experience, um, it made it possible for me to be more compassionate for other people and then to see my loss kind of reflected against the canvas of, of larger losses uh, and then And then you realize well i 'm just part of this human experience that everyone is is sharing in, and if you can feel your connection to other people, I think that that 's when your own individual pain um, doesn 't hurt quite as much
2: I think there's also something you know what uh there are many traditions that that believe you only learn through hard experiences mm-hmm. um. <laughs> I don't think that's entirely true because, uh, for instance, having children taught me a tremendous amount. And mm-hmm. that was, by and large, very positive, mm-hmm. hard but positive mm-hmm. experience. But I do think there is some truth that when we get brought up short, <laughs> you know, yes. when when something just really undoes us, uh, there is a potential to learn a lot. Yeah. not not i don't i don't ascribe to the you know opportunity to grow kind of way of thinking of that but it happens and then we can learn or not learn uh yeah, that's I the part that's we true. have some some you know something to say about
3: I, I think so, and I, I agree with you. I think there's no reason to make your life worse than it is um and I mean, and I was even just sitting here thinking to myself well you you said you were the architect of your own misery, Marie, and that's because you have a tendency to be hard on yourself mm-hmm. um, you know uh <laughs> and there's no reason to to trap yourself or for for any of us to trap ourselves um
2: and, and also, I think you were saying, you know, this was what about three years after those losses. Yes. Um, but in that, me- in the meantime, you'd had a child. Is that right? Yes. So, to me, uh, I wouldn't necessarily think that if you're still experiencing that, still mourning them in three years, having had a child in the meantime, that that's really so, so complicated. You know, I would think, yeah, that's it takes a long time when you have so much going on.
3: Yeah. The transitions and the changes are so rapid. Yeah. And it it um and you know having a child is a wonderful thing and is is a tremendous blessing, but it does sort of upend the routine (laughs) of one's life. And it was a it was a change. Um and obviously I I love having my son. He's in the book. Um, but I, I also then didn't get to be the person I was before he was born
2: absolutely there's a loss of that other self well yeah. and also just uh, for me anyway um, when I'm in grief uh, a lot of space does me a lot of good mm-hmm. and um, you know if I, if I have time to just sort of rummage around in my own experience mm-hmm. it, I do better and you mm-hmm. didn't have that opportunity so no, I, I imagine that's in here somewhere, too.
3: It's true. I, I got married, and then six months later, my father died, and then, yeah, and then I had my son, and then, yes, you are right. It was a lot of change all at once. But I think, you know, and I think the, the messaging that we get, though, of course, is to, to try to always be happy, to have happiness as a goal, and to have change uh, happen quickly. And mm-hmm. as you say, it, that isn't always possible, and sometimes things simply take time, and that has to be okay,
2: um, Absolutely. Let's take our next break right now. And uh, I want to encourage the listeners to go to my Facebook page, my Twitter. Marie has those too. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I, I really love having contact with the listeners. So be in touch. And learn more about Marie Matsuki Mockett at mariemockett.com. M-A-R-I-E-M-O-C-K-E-T-T dot Back after the break.
0: Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America
4: Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before...
1: Real Life Solutions.
0: Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
2: Welcome back to Good Grief. This is Cheryl Jones, and I'm here with Marie Matsuki Mockett, who lived in her mother's home country, Japan, after the tsunami and explored the customs and beliefs Japanese people have about death. And it resulted in her book, Where the Dead Pause, just released on WW Norton. Um, During the break, Marie, we were talking about how you participated in all of these ceremonies, uh, you know, your whole life when you were in Japan and yet didn't quite know that they were, uh, in many ways about coming together in our grief as human beings. I found that a really, um, you know, that we can be exposed to something and and not know its meaning until something cues us in in our own lives.
3: Yes, and then and then be so grateful for having had the quote unquote training early on for you know for it to be meaningful. Um, I think we were talking specifically about Obon, mm-hmm. which is the one time a year uh, when the spirits of the ancestors and the departed come home and. If you take a plane to Japan during August, usually during August, you'll see that a plane from the United States back to Japan is full of Japanese people, and they're going home for Obon, because it's almost the biggest festival, I think other than other than the New Year's ceremony, it's the biggest festival in Japan. It's kind of like Thanksgiving. You know, people go home for Thanksgiving in this country. They go home for Obon in Japan. And during Obon, you go and you call home the ancestors, have a meal with them, spend some time with them, and then eventually send them back. As a child, my experience of Obon was Obon dancing, where I got to wear a kimono and dance around in a circle and and feel like a pretty little girl dancing. Mm. Uh, And it was only when I was older that I realized that this whole ceremony was connected to respecting the ancestors. And then, you know, as a sort of skeptical teenager and, person in my 20s from the West, I sort of thought, oh, yeah, yeah, the ancestors. Um, and then, by the time I had hit middle age, I thought, oh, the importance of this is uh, I know what I'm supposed to do when I go to Obon, and it means something completely different to me now, because I'm allowed to you know, mourn the loss of someone and remember them, and then also realize that everyone else around me is doing the exact same thing. Um And you just realize that these old traditions must have been created with the idea in mind that we want to remember the people who we've lost, um, but we also want to honor that everyone else has lost someone too, um, and that grief is a shared experience. It's really profound on a lot of different levels. Um, and then I was and I think a lot of old cultures have that in place.
2: You know absolutely. I'm thinking, of, uh, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Dia de los Muertos, you know, yes. where everyone goes to the graveyard. I mean, yes. that's just such a phenomenal concept to us who've been raised western. Yes. You know, it just yes. there I can't think of anything comparable. I mean, I think people are are beginning to try to recreate that. For instance, I'm I'm uh, with with some other people putting on a death salon this coming Sunday. Mm-hmm. Uh to to marry the arts and a conversation about death, you know, but that's made up. It's not something right. that's been done forever and ever and ever and ever, which it's just seemed to me, reading the book, to have such power and significance. It is one of the things
3: about Japan that makes it for me a really remarkable place, because, as I said, it has all of the everything that you need for a modern country: modern Western medicine and education, its transportation but it has also preserved these old ceremonies. And sometimes, you know, you can go to Japan and see some old ceremony and not know why it's there. I mean, we we were talking about Old Baba, the old hag in this temple. I think that the temple that I visited is the only one in Japan where Old Baba is enshrined. And in fact, if I hadn't met the very eccentric priest who runs it, I wouldn't even have known (laughs) that the Mm -hmm. temple was dedicated to her. And I, wouldn't, and I had to spend a lot of time thinking about, well, who is she, and why is she enshrined at this temple? Um, because some of these old rituals or these symbols, like I was saying at the very beginning of the program, are speaking to us from so long ago that we don't even really necessarily know what they mean or yes. how to interpret them, but there's always, I think, a very direct and important lesson, and that's the, the same with El um, there's a reason why everybody has to dance together. You know, you have that experience of physically moving with other people at the same time, and it does do something to you. You know, you 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 physically feel comforted that you're moving to the same gestures as everyone else around you, even people you don't know.
2: Absolutely. Mm, that's that, that. I I just love that. Idea, and I remember feeling maybe something a little similar when I, I've been to, you know, grief workshops or something. Yeah. Just that sense of being accompanied yes. is so is so powerful. Yeah, I think. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Go Go ahead. Well, I just was going to say
3: I was. I had this really fascinating conversation in December with a Japanese therapist. And, you know, we often say that people in Japan don't have modern mental health care, but there are therapists, clinical social workers in Japan, and psychotherapists working with people who use Western techniques. But it was so interesting, this one woman I spoke to said, well, I really, I, I do a lot of talk therapy, but I am also trying to incorporate meditation into the work that I do, she said, because you, you have to not just focus on your own pain you have to cast it against this larger canvas to have it in perspective. Otherwise, your own pain is always going to come back. Um, Mm -hmm. And so she was sort of rediscovering some of these old Asian traditions and marrying them with some modern Western therapeutic traditions. And I thought that was just absolutely fascinating.
2: And I think that is, to an extent, going on with people I know, too. Absolutely. That, yeah. You know, that we just, yeah. we, have to, we have to get some things back that we tossed out yeah, <laughs> that, so. that really are I meaningful. So.
3: And it is I one was... of the beautiful things about, you know, there are a lot of people, I think, in California and in the West and literally all throughout the country who are trying to find a way to live that is healthy and that, you know, takes the best of different cultures and different attitudes so that we can live a more whole life. And it, it is inspiring to see that.
2: Yeah, I was so aware throughout the book, several times people would say to you, um, and I think I thought it was important that you quoted this more than once, you can't really understand, you're not Japanese, (laughs) Um, which of course is true and untrue, I guess. But, um, Mm -hmm. But to me, it seemed as if the power of your observation maybe did have a little to do with being inside and outside at the same time. Well, uh, I think so. I think I'm also
3: really stubborn. So being told you can't understand, <laughs> um, you know, uh, they were just not going to get away with saying that to me. <laughs> um, you are going to understand I, it, it, no matter what. Huh? <laughs> that's right. Uh, I think in you know this thing. In my case, I've been going to Japan since I was two and a half, and it is a very different place than any western country it doesn't draw from the same judeo-christian tradition and that affects everything it changes the way the advertising is it changes people's sense of humor i mean people are still people no matter where you go i really believe that but culture is an incredibly powerful thing and because i was going to japan since i was a small child my imagination was really activated there um And I carry that with me, and I do, when I get to Japan, I really do feel these parts of my imagination kind of spring to life that aren't alive when I'm in the West, and vice versa. When I come back to the United States, it'll take me a little while, but I'll notice, oh, my body's moving differently now that I'm back in the United States. And, you know, it's not, this happens to everyone. I mean, if you're from California and you go to New York, you'll notice people move differently, speak differently, use their hands differently. My friends from New York who come to California also go through similar change where they relax a little bit. So we all understand what that means, right, to go someplace new and have your way of seeing and maybe even your way of moving change. And for me, that change has always been more extreme um, in Japan. But because it was so extreme uh, and because I tend to ask a lot of questions, um, I've spent a lot of time wondering, well, what, what does that mean? You know? Yes. What is so different? Um, what do people see that's different in this culture than uh, than we see at home? Um, and uh, I tried very, very hard to look at Japan and try to find a way to interpret it from the inside so Westerners could understand. Um, A lot of writing about Japan is about weird, quirky Japan or Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. intangible, spiritual Japan, and that just doesn't make sense, right? It's a country of people (laughs) with a culture that is human. So I was trying very, very hard to say, what are the things that are very special about this place that I really want people at home in the West to understand? And as I talked to Japanese they will tell you, well, this is what we want you to understand.
2: Well, that's the thing I noticed, both that they said you couldn't understand and they took great care in sharing with you. Yes. yes. Both were true. And yes. and I think that this might be just a perfect moment to, to read the section towards the end of your book sure. about Oban.
3: Sure. When I traveled around Japan, On the tour of obon Ceremonies, I repeatedly asked my ancestors to make me feel more happy than sad. In a way, that was what had happened, but with one very important difference. It was not that my sadness had shrunk so much or that my happiness had grown. Instead, I now saw my sadness in the context of everyone else's grief. I am, after all, just one person on a planet of millions, all of whom... If they have not already, we'll also suffer the same intense feelings of shock and loss that I have, and many of whom will do so in far more traumatic settings. My little lantern of grief but was but one in a sea of other lanterns. I couldn't help but think about the priest Minami's observation that as a Westerner, I would always want to know why I was doing something. I would never be willing to just go through the experience and then learn the lesson at the end. That would feel too passive. Grieving, I thought, was a perfect example of just such an experience. I had been so angry to be sad so much of the time, unable to trust that in time I would recover and adapt to the lessons of grief.
2: That's such a powerful um, reading about what What I think is involved in in every great transformation, you know one of the images I use is that when I start working with someone i'm we're looking at the back of a tapestry, yeah you know all the knots and and strings and uh it doesn't make any sense yes and and then at some point it turns around mm. and there's and the, and there's a picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we see we see what we're looking at. I mm-hmm. I, feel, I thought of that image when I read that part of your mm-hmm.
3: book. It's a wonderful, and I think I think that metaphors like that are so powerful and so much a part of how we learn. You know, that is the importance of art. That is the importance of stories. Um, we still learn best, I think, from the parable. You know, if I were yes. to say to somebody. You just have to go through it and then you'll get it. (laughs) Yes. You know, or or, a clinical description of what happens to the brain. I mean, all of that is interesting. Yes. But we do learn best when we're given a metaphor.
2: Marie, thank you so much for being here. I hope we'll stay in touch. I've I've really enjoyed it. great pleasure. (laughs) Thank you so much for for having me on your show. Absolutely. And uh, listeners, go find Marie at com. Next week, I'm grateful to be welcoming back Melanie Damore. She was on earlier. A gifted musician who, along with a very active performance career, sings at the bedsides of dying people. It's really very special show for me because her father and my mother died within a few weeks of each other in September, both from pancreatic cancer. And we'll be talking and singing about our losses and what our careers working at death, loss, and grief has, have taught us. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.